Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Well, today, guys, we have a very interesting episode, to say the least. We have on the show Robert Edward Grant, who is a polymath, a successful entrepreneur, best-selling author, and the host of Code X, an original television series on Gaia and Amazon Prime. Robert, as they say, is a renaissance man. He is educated in so many different fields. And in this conversation, we're going to talk about ancient civilizations, lost history, verifiable proof of what is truly encoded in the pyramids, and how spirituality and our evolution as a soul is connected to our history, our lost history, ancient civilizations, the pyramids, and so much more. I know you guys are going to really, really enjoy this one, so let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show Robert Edward Grant. How you doing, Hi, Robert? great to be here with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. Thanks, I'm Alex. excited to talk to you. I've been watching your shows on Gaia forever. And, you know, you know, my audience knows I geek out about this kind of stuff. So I think we're going to have a really interesting scientific spirituality, ancient civilizations kind of conversation. So my first question to you, my friend, is I've heard this term polymath thrown around a mm-hmm. lot. Can you explain to the audience what a polymath is? A polymath, actually the word polymath just means many learnings. Most people think that the math part refers to mathematics. And to a certain extent it does. But actually all the way up until the time of Aristotle, the word mathematics simply meant all learning. It didn't mean the study of quantity or the science of quantity. It was more narrowly described by Aristotle as the science of quantity. But in Plato's day, which was prior to Aristotle, right, even though they knew each other, he was kind of the older mentor of Aristotle. Um, And from Socrates and Pythagoras all the way back through antiquity, mathematics was just the actual process of learning because math is the language of all learning. So what inspired you to begin your work in in so many different fields? You know, I was always just curious. I didn't want to be pigeonholed into one category. You know, when I was in high school, I was a musician. I also loved art. I had uh, very broad interests. I love to travel. I've been lucky in my life. I've been over 140 countries. I've lived in nine different countries, and I learned eight different languages in my lifetime. And the reason I learned those languages is because I wanted to learn the cultures of the places I lived in. And I thought the best way to learn the culture is to actually learn their language. And so what I started to do was just look at the world very differently all the time. I looked at it always through a lens, and I thought that lens was similar to how other people looked at the world, but actually I learned throughout my life that the way I saw the world was very different than how everyone else saw it. And 
early on, I started thinking, well, maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe the way I see things differently is not necessarily a good thing because maybe I see things that other people think that they cannot see themselves. And then it sort of impugns in a way my own integrity as to whether or not I was experiencing what other people were experiencing. And what I realized throughout time was actually that that weakness that I perceived early on was actually my greatest strength. And I think those things that often we believe are our great weaknesses have the opportunity to become our greatest strengths when we realize why they're there and what the purpose is for us to have those strengths and characteristics. It's our uniqueness that makes us very, very divine. And I think that's the thing that the universe wants the most is our uniqueness and us to find that authenticity. So for me, finding that uniqueness and experiencing it was through music and equal parts of mathematics and geometry and and ancient history and wisdom uh, teachings, as well as uh, esoterica and mysticism. Uh, I also found it through the study of the sciences, the natural sciences, uh, which includes physics and, and chemistry and biology, et cetera. So all of these things, you start to realize that there's a common thread that interlaces and weaves throughout all of it, like you know, it's this this common golden thread that is woven into this tapestry of experience. And that common golden thread is this notion of mathematics as the underlying language of all of it. And even emotional states can be described mathematically. So when you start realizing that, then you start thinking, wait a minute, there is actually probably a larger purpose that I have not yet at this point in my life perceived that I feel like I'm on the precipice of starting to understand and comprehend. So, you, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about ancient civilizations. Mm -hmm. One of the many things that you could have a conversation mm -hmm. about uh, in ancient cultures. How have the how has your study of those ancient civilizations, lost history, cultures, influenced your own spiritual beliefs moving for, moving throughout? Life? You know, it's had a massive impact because I think the best indicator of the future is probably to look to history. Um, mm -hmm. History doesn't tend to repeat itself necessarily, but it certainly rhymes. And that's a, a way that I kind of think about this. You know, history doesn't repeat, but it has this rhyming characteristic. So maybe we're just in a big rap song. I don't know. But <laughs> the thing is, is that I think that there is great wisdom. And I think part of it was because as a child, I remember when I was 15 years old as a young man, I thought my parents were not very intelligent. And by the time I turned 22 years old, like Mark Twain said, I was astounded at how much my parents had learned in the last seven years. That's amazing. And so when you think about it in those terms, you know, as a kid, I used to think everything was black and white. And how could this be such a difficult thing? Why not just like kill all the people or, or have capital punishment on all the people that do bad things, right? Or murder or whatever. And then you mm -hmm. start realizing as time goes on that, what you thought was black and white becomes more about a study of the grays and the gradations of the grays mm -hmm. that they actually are. And that that is actually the formation of wisdom, starting to realize that not everything is black and white. Because what it requires is for us to understand empathy and being able to see things from different perspectives, because we don't see the universe as it actually is. We see it as we are. So that means that everybody has their own unique viewpoint on how they see and perceive the world. And for us, we get so stuck in this notion of there has to be an objective truth. There has to be an objective truth. Well, maybe the only real objective truth would be the sum of all possible subjective perspectives of that truth. This is why we have, you know, a uh, crime. 
And at the scene of the crime, there might be 30 eyewitnesses. And then you have in the court 30 different reports of what happened that are very differing but between themselves. They're all very, very different. How can it be this way? Well, it's because the truth is more like a prism with many, many facets. And what the universe is doing is it's experiencing, it's, it's experiencing itself through our eyes and adding more and more facets to expand its own wisdom and knowledge as well. So each one of us is literally providing an opportunity for the universe to observe itself through our eyes. And that's an expansion of perspective. And that's why I love geometry so much, is because geometry helped expand my perspectives. It is that spiritual teaching of just opening your awareness, essentially. And the wider it gets, the more you see things clear. That's exactly right. Being able to expand your awareness is what allows us to have empathy. You know, when you're kind of the far end of narcissistic thought, and narcissism within society is probably at its peak, right? But that's also the doorway to a new emergence of spirituality and spiritual growth. Because once we get to that stage of narcissism, we think that everything in the world should be as we see it. We think that the things that we are passionate about and the things that we don't like in the world and that we're trying to stamp out are actually things that everyone should want to stamp out and be rid of. And that's why we have cancel culture. Because the things that don't jive with that narrative, then we don't know what to do with. And that is the epitome of narcissism and narcissistic behavior, to just stamp it out and say that it doesn't exist, because it's only the narcissist that cannot see that he is all of those things, or she is all of those things. The person who judges someone else negatively is actually suffering from the thing they judge in another person, and they just can't see it. Mm -hmm because they don't have 360-degree vision on themselves. They're only seeing the one truth that they want to project to the world, not what they actually are doing within that world. And so as we expand our perspectives, we start realizing, wait a minute, maybe the way I've been seeing the world is only one perspective. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And that's why I do the show, to open up people's perspectives on things that they might have never been exposed to, like these kind of conversations. Well, and it starts to become an epiphany for people because they start realizing, what a coincidence, the things that I don't like about myself are the things that I judge in everybody else. <laughs> very So true. we attract very, very everything true. we judge until we no longer judge everything we attract. And then you start realizing that this world is not a world of materialism. It's a world of mentalism, and this world of mentalism is directly tied to our experience and perception with and of it. You know, we were just talking about what the bleep do we know, right? And mm -hmm. I, I was with, uh, with uh, Joe Dispenza last week when he came to uh, Southern California, and so I got to meet him and talk to him uh, briefly in the, uh, in the uh, VIP room just before he went out on the stage. And... It's so fascinating because I remember when I first saw What the Bleep Do We Know, I think it was probably 2009 when I saw it, mm -hmm. and, um, and it had a profound impact on me because I started realizing that the way I was observing the world around me was actually impacting what I was observing. Interesting. So there's a part of What the Bleep Do We Know, which you might remember, which has the double slit phenomenon embedded within it. Mm-hmm. 
right? The double slip mm -hmm. phenomenon is a is an experiment that shows that that particles, what we think of as particles and materiality, can actually operate as waves of potentiality. And they can jump back and forth between waves or particles. Now, we have this in number theory as well. You could take a number like seven, and in its particle form, it would just be seven. It's a discrete value. But if you take one over seven, it's 0.142857, and those six digits repeat infinitely like a wave. 142857, 142857. It's a sine cosine distribution, right? Mm -hmm. So even numbers themselves have this property of being both infinite and discrete. It's simply a function of a mirror of one over X. So with this, mm -hmm. it means that when we observe something, if we can abstain from judging it immediately, it can still remain in this realm of potentiality. It could be a lot of things. I'll give you an example. Let's bring this down to something practical. Okay. What's the worst thing that ever happened to you, Alex? Uh, I almost made a $20 million movie with a mobster. Okay. So you almost made a $20 million movie with a mobster. Well, I guess you could have said, hey, but it's going to be about the mafia, right? <laughs> Who knows, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got a, you got a PhD and in, in potentially making a movie, but the way you said that, Oh yeah. I almost made a $20 million movie with a mobster. Now, now why did you say almost? Because I didn't finish it. It never happened. Okay, so now as you It was just a journey. Ah. So now as you look back on that. Yeah. Do you consider that really a bad thing or potentially one of the best things that ever happened to you? Oh, it absolutely is the best thing that ever happened to me. But also at the same time the worst thing, uh, one of the worst things that ever happened to me, oh. but is the catalyst for what I do every day, trying to help people because of the, uh, because of what I went through and having my life threatened and destroying my dreams and being close to my dream and destroying my dream. It's a whole thing. So yeah, it is the best and the worst thing that ever happened to me. So it could live both at the exact same time. So this is fascinating because when it was happening in time, how many years ago was this for you? Oh. Almost 20. So you were probably like crapping your pants every day, right? Because like you oh, don't yeah. want to like get in bed with the mob because if it doesn't work out for you, you might end up with a horse head in your bed, right? It's like one of those type deals. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sure. And I'm sure you got scared and you probably had a lot of fear at that time, right? Is that fair? Mm -hmm. But now you look oh, back yeah. on it and you're like, wow, that defined in large part what I've since become. Yes, that it really had a huge impact on who you are and what you do mm -hmm. today and how you spend your time. So now you probably look back on that experience and say, wow, I'm so glad I did that or I had that experience because I learned so much from it. Now, I can tell you right now, I don't even remember the names of the teachers in my high schools and junior high who did not push me mm -hmm. and did not challenge me and did not give me a hard time. I only remember the ones who pushed me, the ones who believed in me more than I believed in myself and who actually put me through hell at the time. But now I look back on those teachers, not even being able to remember the other names of the other teachers who were easy on me. And I remember those that had the huge impact on my life and say, I'm so grateful that I had that teacher because I learned this from that particular teacher. And in the end, while he was really tough on me, I learned the most. 
Mm-hmm. So I just had this experience on Friday last week where uh, Cal State Fullerton uh, honored me with this lifetime achievement recognition in leadership and entrepreneurship. And mm-hmm. and I I, rem- I you know I was trying to think about what I was going to talk about for this speech, right? Because I've given yeah. like you know university commencement speeches and that stuff I did at Chapman University ten years ago as well. And I took that as an opportunity to speak about all my failures. And and so probably midway through my talk 10 years ago when I gave that speech at Chapman, uh, everyone was probably thinking, why'd they get this guy? You know, this is depressing. He just told all about his failures. (laughs) I mean, what a loser, right? And then I cut the speech and I said, look, at this point, you're probably wondering what the heck, why did the university choose this clown to give this speech? And I said, well, the good news is if all else fails is an undergraduate class, right? That was just graduating. If all else fails, you can always go back to MBA school, right? <laughs> so, right. so basically everyone laughed and I said, the reason I'm telling you about all my failures is because every one of those failures led to my greatest successes. And I am just as grateful for the failures and the challenges as I am for the successes in many ways more so. So mm-hmm. I gave a similar speech this Friday, this last Friday. Because I was, you know, obviously there to thank family and friends and, you know, all the people that helped get me there. And if I've gotten anywhere, like Isaac Newton says, it's been standing on the shoulders of giants and all that. By the way, most people don't know that when Newton said that, he was actually uh, cutting down one of his colleagues who's only like four feet seven. And (laughs) so he was kind of an asshole. Uh, People didn't really know that. And they all think, oh, what a humble statement. It's all about perspective, right? It's all about perspective. And so... I looked at it and I said, my life has been a series of wonderful successes and even more wonderful failures. Mm-hmm. And the failures have defined me and set me on a path that I could never, ever regret them having occurred. Mm-hmm. In fact, isn't life this way in general? You know, I'm a musician. In music, we have these these tones and these intervals of music, right? So a major third is the most beautiful sound in music. It's just the da-da, that beautiful sound, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. But if I were to take that and find its inverse, so that's an ascending interval. If I took its descending interval, the descending version of it becomes a minor sixth. And when you ask people what they feel when they hear you're you're in film, right? And movies, you know, mm-hmm. you can use music to entrain certain sympathetic resonances of frequency mm-hmm. of emotional mm-hmm. states. You you bring in Darth Vader, you're gonna do the you know diminished fifth and an augmented fourth, dun 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 mm-hmm. and you can entrain or people to feel a certain way. You know, a horror movie is gonna have this low frequency vibe sound that can agitate people in the yeah. background. Well. We can entrain emotion with mathematical perfection. It is through mathematical intervals that those chords and those intervals are accomplished. Mm -hmm. So the major third is a five over four interval in just tuning, Pythagorean tuning. But its inverse, right, is going to be eight over five. And what's fascinating about this is that five over four would be the height versus one half the base of a pyramid. And eight over five mm-hmm. is the full base versus the height of a pyramid. And this pyramid I'm talking about is Menkari pyramid on the Giza plateau. 
This is the third pyramid on the Giza Plateau. So it has the mathematical ratios of the major third and the minor sixth embedded perfectly in its proportions? Yes, it does. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Now, what does that mean and why would they do that? Well, you have to understand that the other pyramids are also giving all 13 of the musical intervals in their proportions. Now, you've probably not heard this before. I, I have from watching. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> what does this mean? It means that on the one hand, when we look at Menkari Pyramid, we feel this feeling of love. It's a beautiful pyramid. It's really beautiful. And yet at the same time, there's something dark about that pyramid. There's a dark, mm. hidden aspect to that pyramid. And if we look at it just from a different perspective, it becomes heartbreak and tragedy. So if people say when they listen to a major third, that da-da, right? We listen to that and we think, oh, that's so beautiful. Then it goes da-da-da. And then we've got now a perfect fifth in addition to the major third. And we're sitting here saying, wow, that sounds awesome. It feels like love and stability. Now we take their inverses and we've got heartbreak and tragedy. So maybe the pyramid builders, builders are telling us something about the nature of life and experience. That in the experience of love is the seed of heartbreak. And the only difference is a function of time. Because the notes are actually the same. For a major third, that would be a C note to an E note. And then to do a descending form of that, it would be a high C note back down to the E note. The same notes, made in different mm -hmm. order, is a time function difference. So this brings us a beautiful, a beautiful entry into our conversation about the pyramids. Let's talk about some the pyramids because I've seen some of the work that you've done in the decoding of the pyramids, and it's absolutely fascinating. First question: Who built the pyramids, in your opinion, from your research? In my opinion, it would be what we would call Metatron or Thoth. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go into ancient Egyptian history, who built the pyramids? It was Thoth who built the pyramids. And who is the Thoth? architect. So Thoth is a man who has had many, many different names, but he was also an Egyptian god. And mm -hmm. as an Egyptian god, he was, um, you know, he was the god of wisdom. He looks like an ibis. He's got this beak kind of thing coming off. He's got symbols, different animals represent him as well. Uh, another one of his symbologies is a baboon, right? From like Babylon, baboon, babi is, uh, is baboon. And, and so Thoth was this god of wisdom who was also a magician and an alchemist. He was the person who was said to have been the god of all weights and measurements. So he created all measurement systems in Egyptian history. So even how we look at time, you know, the sexagesimal mathematical system would have been created by Thoth. Thoth um, is another way of saying thought, which is kind of deep. But there was mm -hmm. a name of an Egyptian architect that the Egyptians credit, even dynastic period believers, right, that they're the ones who built the Great Pyramid and the other two pyramids on the plateau. They believe that the fellow that did it was a guy by the name of Hem or Herm, Herm Aeon. So the, uh, one of the other names 
for Thoth is Hermes, Trace Majestus. Another mm-hmm. name is Metatron, the angelic form of Hermes. Another name is what he was before he became a god, which was Enoch, a man. So all of these things we now see, there's evidence that we've just discovered that basically points to Metatron's cube being the foundational basis of the architecture of the entire Geezer Plateau. And can you explain what the Metatron's cube is? So Metatron's cube looks like a it's a it's a very important form, and the form looks like a uh, Merkaba, right? If you know what a Merkaba is, or a Star of David, it's basically mm-hmm. two triangles that are interlocking, right, intersecting each other, and they represent you know masculine and feminine balance. And in the ancient yeah. sense, it also represented because it's more about energetic balance. It represents the left and right brain merging into one, right? So the seat of creativity, imagination, um, and and all of the, the irrational aspects of our mind sits in our right brain, if we're right-handed, and our left brain is the center of analytical thought, right? And that's more the rational thought process, the straight line versus the curve. So where we find that balance between form and function, that that balance between masculine and feminine, that balance between functionality and beauty, right? And being able to really have a, a beautiful design is that incredible balance that we find in between. And I think that's exactly uh, what you would point everything back to Hermes Trace Majestus or Metatron or Enoch. They all represented achieving this higher balance and wisdom between the left and right brains of the of the mind. And then that leads you into a new form of consciousness that I like to refer to as heart-brain coherence. Connecting the, the physical with the spiritual or consciousness? Yes, it's both, but it's also recognizing that the world uh, has been kind of imbalanced for the last couple of thousand years towards the brain and more about logos and less about intuition and less about the heart and the emotional aspects. Uh, we We haven't valued them as much as I think, you know, uh, historically we have. And just as I was giving the comparison of my parents becoming very wise over only seven years, right? It wasn't that my parents changed. It was me that changed. I changed in what I valued. I changed in how I saw them. And my experience with the world helped me to see things differently in a more expansive way. I believe that studying ancient wisdom is exactly that for us as a people as a culture, uh, as a species, because now we can look back and maybe they learned a few things about how not to become imbalanced right throughout time. And maybe they've tried to leave some of these things for us so that we can learn these things at the proper time. And part of it might just be related to the calendar of how we experience the world through time. Yeah, because it's all depending on a cycle. Everything kind of happens. Yeah, it cycles exactly. Everything kind of gets released at the information gets released at a certain time. It's amazing how in the last 150 years that we've been able to do what we've been able to do technologically. But for the past, you know, four or five thousand years, we couldn't even come close technologically, quote unquote, to what we've been able to do in the last hundred, 150. Why all of a sudden did all of this information get turned on? Why all of a sudden do we have access to all of this and exponentially growing? At a, at, a, at a speed that if we kept going at this pace, I don't even, like Elon Musk said, like <laughs> another hundred years of this, another 500 years of this, 
we're going to be able to create a an environment or a simulation that is you can't even tell what's real and what's not. I believe that's exactly what we're in. And so yeah, and and before we get into simulation theory, because that's a deep hole we're <laughs> we're going to get into later. Um, going back to thought to Thoth, I've heard different theories that Thoth was Atlantean. If you believe in the, in the Atlantean myth, quote unquote myth, some people believe it's there. Real Plato obviously believed yep. it. Um, that he was a priest. That was one of the one of the priests that escaped and get, went over to Egypt. There was a handful of them that went over to different areas of the world, like in Meso- Mesoamerica, uh, India, all these kind of places where we start to see uh, this knowledge pop up mm-hmm. all of a mm-hmm. sudden. And if you and I would go to a place more you than me would go to a place that had native people who have never seen any technology whatsoever. And you try to rebuild society based on the knowledge in your mind, you would be considered a God based on the knowledge. You would be considered a mystic though. You would just understand it at a different level than Mm -hmm. everybody Mm -hmm. else. Is that a fair statement? I think it is. And you know, it's funny because it's always been, always been so that throughout history, you know, what we, call spirituality is just the science we didn't understand yet. You know, I mean, or magic, right? If 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 I'd had one of these a hundred years ago, even though Tesla was already talking about the advent of these coming, right? It would have looked like magic to anybody else. A car would have. A car exactly. would have looked like magic. So so this notion that we are you know engaging in in spirituality that is that is not scientific well maybe it's just the science we don't understand yet and and i think that is the case i think we're still not even really understanding what the notion of time actually is how time cycles on itself and i don't even think we have basic understanding around what the speed of light actually is we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor And now back to the show. Or even what the vacuum is. We consider the vacuum of space being entirely empty, but I can tell you it's not empty at all. In fact, it's often referred to as a plenum, which means it's full, right? It's full of something. And what I would call it would be the luminiferous ether, just like Tesla would refer to it. Mm-hmm. That what we think is nothing is there is there's always something there. So, and and then it starts to make you really go down this other rabbit hole of, wait, is darkness really the absence of light or is it just its opposite condition? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. No, I've been hearing, seeing it when I started dabbling in quantum physics, meaning that just trying to understand it, the theory that there is, that space is actually something. There's something between the planets because how else can gravity and black holes exist in the way that they do. And, and you start seeing some of these simulations in, in, you know, showing and trying to explain these ideas. And it makes all the sense in the world because people, physicists are saying that the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light in theory. Correct. Is that correct? I mean, it's at least expanding at approximately the speed of light. Right. And that's what people all have a hard time wrapping their brains around because why is, first of all, what is this dark thing that's expanding that's creating everything to be pushing away from each other? And then that kind of goes to inflation theory, right? In, Mm -hmm. in physics. And, 
I believe it's like a big breathing exercise, like a giant inhalation and then exhalation. And it just going through mm -hmm. cycles. And these cycles are here for us to learn in a game that I would refer to as a category called a spiritual life simulation. Mm -hmm. And the spiritual life simulation, we're here to learn through opposites, through experiencing the opposites. So we learn concepts. So let's say you choose out a menu. I want to learn unconditional love. That means that you will continue to be confronted with conditional love your entire life, and you will judge it harshly until you no longer judge conditional love so much, and then you've finally learned the concept of what it means to experience unconditional love. Hmm. It's through experiencing the opposites. You cannot learn what is pleasure without experiencing also pain. Right. And it's not that the that the heart breaks when you have difficulty and trauma and challenge. The ego breaks. The heart only expands. So through all of this, we increase our capacity to learn and to love through tearing our muscles of our spiritual bodies. Right? It's, it's like, uh, you know, you go to a gym. If there's no pain, there's no gain. Same concept. If you're in a spiritual life simulation, you're not going to choose a simple life because you're not going to learn very much. You know, when I was an undergraduate in college, I was like, you know, I don't really need to study that much. I got good grades anyway. So I wasn't going to really get deep into it. I could kind of do the bare minimum. But, but when I went to grad school, I was like, you know what? I'm only fooling myself with a little bit more wisdom. I realized I should study this because I'm the one who's losing if I cheat myself of it. Right. And so I studied everything. I, I wanted to really learn it inside out, backwards and forwards. That was a new concept for me in the concept of going to school and what it meant to be a student. But through the difficulty, through the challenge, I learned more. I got more value from it. And I think that's what we mm -hmm. choose here when we come here to this existence, to learn through opposites, to learn love, to learn forgiveness, and to remember who we are. These are the things that I would say are the reasons why we're here in this spiritual life simulation game. Yeah, and I, everything you just said has been reinforced by spiritual and ancient texts and ancient wisdoms that I've been exposed to. Uh, even spiritual masters who've come on the show say the exact same thing um, in just a different, a little bit different wording, but it's all very, makes all the sense of the world. Now, we were talking about Thoth, Thoth mm -hmm. before, um, what are the Emerald Tablets? So the Emerald Tablets of Thoth the Atlantean, and I like to uh, refer to this uh, as the Doreal translation, which was a channel text that came in the early 20th century. And this is a record and a story of Thoth. It's a story of Thoth. I've, mm -hmm. I've read it more than 200 times. And every time mm -hmm. I read it or listen to it on audio tapes, um, I get something entirely new from it. So it has some quality to it that is transcendent. And it tells the story of Thoth as an Atlantean and how his people and his civilization was basically at the end. It was beyond their apex, and they knew they were going into a period of darkness. And so basically, he left us the, these emerald tablets in order to find them and raise our consciousness when the world was ready for that consciousness uh, to raise. And it tells a story also, and he talks about it in the Emerald Tablets as having uh, been associated with the pyramid, right? And 
the Great Pyramid is the pyramid of Earth life force. And that pyramid, he claims in the Emerald Tablets, to have been built by him. He says, built I, the Great Pyramid. Mm-hmm. And he says it several places, builded I, the Great Pyramid. And then he challenges the reader to lay in the sarcophagus, and the mysteries will be revealed to you. So I took that to heart. And I went to Egypt, and I laid in the sarcophagus. I've spent 13 nights in the Great Pyramid now. Wow. And it has been some of the most transcendent experiences of my entire life. What happens? What happens to you? Well, first of all, you realize that the Great Pyramid is like a musical instrument. Um, right. So the vibration, there's vibration. Oh, yeah. As soon as you go in, there's a thing called the antechamber. You go past the Great Step, which is the final step under the apex of the Great Pyramid. And then you go through this little corridor that's a crouch space that's about 39 inches high. It's about one meter high. And as you walk through there, there's two little antechambers. There's a very small antechamber, and then there's a larger antechamber. So the antechamber that's really small, it's only wide enough that my shoulders will fit inside of it. So you stand there, and I can fit probably with about one inch clearance on both sides. And if you find the right resonance frequency in there, which is 117 hertz, right, which Mm -hmm. the Great Pyramid is 11 over 7, that's the base to the height. So 117 and 11.7 squared is 137, and that's the number of times the sarcophagus will fit inside the king's chamber. And that's a very important mathematical constant, which is called alpha, and that math constant is the separation between light and darkness, called the electron coupling constant. Even the famous physicist himself, Richard Feynman, refers to it as the most mysterious number that we have, because it's the threshold of where light will emit or be absorbed from an electron. Okay, so it's literally separation of light from darkness. Now, so if you stay, if you go in through this little crawl space, it's only 39 inches high, about seven or eight feet into it, you can stand up and you find this resonance frequency of 117 hertz, which is just like you're hearing just are like you hearing that. it or feeling it. You feel it because then the whole chamber, you're standing in there, it goes, wow. It's like this right, resonance right. goes, wow, and it shakes the hell out of you. And you go, whoa, Mm -hmm. what is this? It's almost like that little chamber is where you sage yourself. It's like a saging. It's like a a vibrational clearing to cleanse you before you go into the king's chamber. Right? Mm -hmm. So what I do is I'll have people come into that. I'll be standing there. I'll tap them on the back when they start crawling by me because it's only about four feet wide this way also. And I say, stand up. And then they stand up. They're like, oh, I can stand up in here. And and then I do that to them, you know, and they're like, wow. And then and then they go into the next antechamber and there's less residents in there. And then once you've done that, then you go into the king's chamber. And then when you lay in the sarcophagus, you can resonate at the same frequency, that same humming sound. Just like that. You don't have to do more and you don't have to do it louder. And once you do, if you're laying in the sarcophagus, just as if you're standing up in the antechamber, you feel the entire pyramid's force come on like an engine. It starts going wah, 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 like super loud, like super loud. You've got to experience it. You have to experience it. You got this oh, look on your face like, what the f-? So <laughs> <laughs> you do it. I'm dying to go, man. Yeah, no, it's it. It's the most amazing experience you'll ever have. I can tell you that. 
And a lot of people it, have had incredible experiences in there. Is it, is it, I mean, can it be equivalent, equivalent of a psychedelic experience sometimes, depending on why you're sleeping there at night? Well, first of all, I've never slept in the pier. I've spent 13 nights in there. I think I've done it more than anyone I know, uh, but mm-hmm. I've never slept. So I don't sleep inside mm-hmm. there. I'm awake because we're discovering stuff and all the okay. mysteries are hidden all over the walls, like literally all over the walls and the mathematics of the architecture. So if you're interested in this, there's a new film that we just made called uh, Giza, the Holy Grail of Geometry. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And it's on YouTube right now. And uh, we just launched it about a week or so ago. But but basically it tells the geometric relationship we found with Metatron's cube that then defines the entire Giza plateau. And that all three pyramids are built off of the same design that we think was done at the exact same time. The story of, you know, uh, Khufu and Menkare and Khafre. So Khufu is the grandfather, then the son was Khafre, and then the grandchild uh, was uh, was Menkare. Uh, and they all had different sized pyramids. And everyone thinks that it was because, you know, somehow Menkare had less money. He'd like, like somehow frittered away the, the fortune of the family. It, it just doesn't really fly, right? All three pyramids were built together. They're based on the Orion belt, uh, you know, within the Orion constellation and their orientation, both in an aerial view dimension, as well as looking at it from the ground is all tied to this Metatron's cube relationship. So this is the first solid evidence that we have, and it's unequivocal mathematically. That's the beautiful part about it. It's the first solid evidence we have that Metatron or Thoth or Enoch or Hermes, Trace Majestus, had a hand in building the pyramid on a centralized plan, uh, and the entire Giza plateau is based on that plan, which then upends a lot of the narrative that we have, because there's no way that it would have been built then over more than 100 years, right? They would have been built with mm-hmm. the same plan in mind at the same time. Faster than 100 Much years. faster. Well, let me ask you this. In your opinion, how old do you think this is? I believe the pyramids are 13,000 years old. Which which goes towards the end of the- Younger Dryas. Uh, the, yeah, the Younger Dryas. That, that's, so basically, the Younger Dryas happens, and then the pyramids are yep. built? Because that's the other thing about this: the whole narrative that mainstream archaeology talks about and science talks about. Is that you know six thousand years and you know we've been getting better, but it seems like the Great Pyramids were the the top of the pyramid, if you will, and then the the construction got worse and worse oh, yeah. as time went on, as opposed to getting better and better as we've been able to see from a log cabin to skyscrapers. We've gone up in in technology and and, and sophistication, where the pyramids degraded over time, like they were losing the information on how well and that's not the only place we've seen that phenomenon we see that in oliente tambo which is in peru Mm -hmm. right we see it in machu picchu you can find where there are more ancient sites embedded within sites that were then you know transited or you know there are interlopers that came or settled there and then they improved upon it and they always use smaller stones much smaller stones right because they couldn't lift because they couldn't lift those gigantic stones. And the same thing is true with the pyramids. There are nine pyramids that are built with large stones 
in all of Egypt, right? Nine pyramids. The rest of them all have small stones, and we believe from an academic perspective that the oldest pyramid was the Djoser complex, which is in Saqqara, the step pyramid. But that pyramid's not yeah. even symmetrical. It doesn't have, it uses like mud bricks. And it's much easier to construct that. And yet there's way more evidence that the pyramids with, with much larger scale stones are much older, much, much older. I believe the first was actually the bent pyramid. And that's shaped like an A when you look at it from the sky. So the letter A is a symbol that's been around for a really, really long time, and it represents the Taurus constellation as well. And A means Aleph, or first. Aleph means the number one. Alpha is number one. Well, let me ask you this. This is something else that's a phenomenon. How is it that cultures on different continents across the world who never had contact with each other, quote-unquote, have pyramids everywhere, from the Mesoamerica to India. I found out Japan recently. I just discovered that they had pyramids. Oh, yeah. They're all over the place. How is that possible if they're all around the same time period or close to it? Similar constructions, a little bit different here and there, but the concept of these pyramids, these monoliths, are around the world. How could that even be Because possible? our understanding of history is entirely wrong. Fair enough. So what's your understanding of history then? So I believe there was a pre-civilization before we have recorded history. And evidence of mm -hmm. that is showing up all over the world. Um, you know, I'm not the only one who says this. There are many people that have said it before me, and there will be many yet still to say it. And, you know, Graham Hancock's done a lot of work on this. There's a, a, a nice television series that he has on uh, on Netflix, Netflix, which is about this, called, yeah. you know, there's a show on Gaia as well called Ancient Civilizations, and then there's the one that he has, which is Ancient Apocalypse. And mm -hmm. I believe that, you know, there is clearly evidence, and I'll just give you some examples of some of that evidence. So we have no mm -hmm. reason to believe that the people that lived in Mesoamerica and Mexico had any relationship with Egypt, right? Yeah. Right. And yet, I'll just throw out a few numbers to you. Mm -hmm. So the base of the Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico, a Teotihuacan, which is actually Tehutihuacan, which is one of the many names of Thoth. Tehuti is one of the names right. of Thoth. Mm -hmm. So the base of that pyramid is 756 feet. The base of the Great Pyramid in Giza is 756 feet. The base of the Pyramid of the Moon in Mexico, next to the Pyramid of the Sun, is 481 feet. The height of the Great Pyramid is 481 feet. The height of the Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico is 216 feet. And the height of Menkari Pyramid, the third smallest pyramid on the Giza Plateau, is 216 feet. Now, that's a lot of coincidence. Mm -hmm. It tells me that there was some knowledge of this harmonic relationship in geometry, because geometry is really just the music we experience with our eyes. That we understand at some point in our history, this relationship of music, geometry, of mathematics, all converging to lead to our life experiences. And these 
convergences in our life experiences are there for us to have realizations to uplevel our consciousness. So how could it be that all three of the pyramids on the Giza Plateau have some relationship to the pyramids in Mexico and Teotihuacan? Oh, but wait, that's not it. And they're both exactly oriented around the belt of Orion. What about the pyramids in China? They're also oriented around the belt of Orion. So how could it possibly be that they were not connected? Obviously, they must have been. You know, I used to believe in coincidences. I don't believe in coincidences anymore. I think what it's showing us is that the entire universe and everything we're experiencing is not what we thought it was. It's fascinating. Well, let me ask you this, because... You know, these we're talking about these pyramids and we're talking about ancient civilizations. What was the purpose of these pyramids? Because they, you know, they're the, the story's been that the Great Pyramid is a tomb, but we've yet never seen any uh, her, uh, um, uh, glyphs in there, anything. Well, there's plenty of glyphs, there's plenty of glyphs. Not glyphs. Uh, 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 no, that's what not the other one we we discovered them, and that's what the subject of my television show on Gaia is. Right, codex. Okay. So the the walls are literally covered with petroglyphs, but petroglyphs. they have been ignored. They're etched petroglyphs. They're covered with them, and people have not seen them because they've been ignored. Now, part of it was also that the the petroglyphs have been scrubbed off in some way, shape, or form. But many are still there and can be seen, and that's the subject what's of the, my television show on Gaia. What's the difference between that and hieroglyphs? Petroglyphs would be like ancient, you know, drawings or writings on the walls, like cave paintings, stuff like that. Uh, but these are etched petroglyphs. Uh, hieroglyphs mm -hmm. would be what we would see as language. We don't see language on the walls. We're not seeing right. hieroglyphics to tell us this is the story that's being told, that we can use a Rosetta Stone to, to try to decipher what it is or, or means. But what we are seeing is we see depictions of a tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, there are dragons. There's even DNA on the North Chamber wall, like literally DNA with nucleotide pairs and everything etched into the wall. And we see a cow and a bull that represent the Apis and Hathor, as well as mm -hmm. on the um, uh, south walls, a water scene. And behind the, the uh, King's Chamber sarcophagus on the west wall, we have, uh, we have a face of what looks like an alien head. It's very clear. Mm -hmm. And an eye of Ra in the center. Um, as well as more DNA on those walls. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, we've seen as well in the uh, Menkari Pyramid on our last trip there, we discovered uh, a Garden of Eden scene, like literally a Garden of Eden scene with Tree of Life of knowledge of good and evil, canopied over a river with snakes all over the walls, like serpents. So, but these are different than what you find in tombs. Yeah, these are completely not, different. These are not tombs. Yeah. So what were they then? That's my question. What were all of these? What was the purpose of I believe pyramids? the purpose of the pyramids is spiritual ascension. Interesting. Totally as a spiritual ascension device. Have you seen this television show? Uh, it's on Apple. Uh, plus, and it's called Foundation. I have not, oh, I've heard of it, but I haven't it's seen a, it. It's a story by Isaac Asimov, and tells the story of a civilization 
far away in some galaxy that was like mm-hmm. 12,000 years ago, right? And they were going into a new phase of their calendar, which is cyclical, which was going to go into a phase of darkness. And so they had a famous mathematician. His name was Harry Sheldon in the book. It's fictional, but art imitates life, as we often know. And and mm-hmm. so he predicts, using his astrological and mathematical methods, that their civilization is going to get wiped out. Totally wiped out. So what he does is he gets everyone to agree that they need to take and put all of their information into this shape, a cuboctahedron. So they compress all the data of their civilization into this shape, but they have to do it in a way that people who find it will be able to decipher it so that they can climb out of the ashes and get more quickly back into a higher civilization form after they've been long dead for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. I believe that's what the pyramid complex is, that it's left us information embedded within its mathematics. It's left us information that we now know it's unequivocal. It's tied to musical interval, which is basically the full mm-hmm. spectrum of light and the full spectrum of sound. So defining our experience that even emotions themselves are based on our interpretation and interpolation of experience of sound and light. And that through the process, as we uncover these things, we increase in our perspectives, expanding our perspective and consciousness, and we remember who we are through the process, and then we can go to the next level of what our hero's journey is. So I believe the pyramids as a complex is actually there to raise consciousness. That's the purpose of it. Just like Harry Sheldon left in his cuboctahedral structure, the same thing was done, I believe, with the pyramid complex. And and it's for, you know, because right now we have uh, every bit of knowledge that we can, almost every bit of knowledge that exists at our fingertips, basically, with the internet, quote unquote. There's a lot that isn't, but generally speaking. But tomorrow, if everything goes away, there's no USB uh, connector for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have a problem with this in film, uh, in the film industry. We're trying to archive and save yeah. film history because everyone's like, oh, DVDs or or hard drives. Yeah, that's great. But in a thousand years, 500 years from now, 100 years from now, will they be able to plug that into whatever's available? You know, right now, film, old school film, light through celluloid is still the best way to archive cinema, much better than hard drives because a hundred years ago, put light through cellular, you got an image and sound and same thing here. But that's similar to the concept of this knowledge that you're trying to protect. And it makes all the sense in the world because you would have to do it in, in a way that when someone like yourself or someone else sees it and goes, well, wait a minute, what are these dimensions? What is this connected to? And it it's all there, but you have to decipher it, essentially. Yeah, I believe that the pyramid complex is a gigantic musical clock that illustrates hmm. for us the nature of time. And time is the encryption that keeps us from going into the higher dimension, the fifth dimension. Because we have axes, right? So you have one line, and then you have, you have X and Y axis. That gives you two dimensions. We measure that in area. We measure a line based on its length. So then you pop right. out a z-axis. So you got x, y, and then a z-axis coming across. That gives you depth. 
perception, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so with depth, then, then now we measure that with volume. So the first dimension measured as a line segment length. The second dimension, the next second dimension is based on area, x times y. And then mm -hmm. you've got a third dimension, which gives us volume. So then the fourth dimension would basically be now rotation, motion on that z-axis, right? And x-axis and y-axis. And that rotation and motion that we have is what we call the fourth dimension of time. Time becomes the encryption for the next dimension. You have to break through the nature of time. What I believe the Great Pyramid Complex is, is a giant clock. It's a clock that tells us the 24,000-year procession of equinox. And I'm purposely not saying 25,000 years or 25,920 because there's a long cycle and a short cycle aspect of this. The long cycle is 25,920 years, so half of the cycle would be half of that, so 12,960. And then the short end of the cycle is only 10,800, which comes out to be 21,600 for the full cycle. So you've got the average of those two is 24,000. As we get closer to our sister star, Sirius A, we start to go through this slingshot type thing, right? We speed mm -hmm. up as we right. come around. And that's based on gravitational pull. It's, it's, it's basically mass time dilation effects that come into this. Mm -hmm. So we are 8.6 light years from our sister star, Sirius A and B. And we are going through this cycle of remembrance, right? And what we're finding, what I believe we're finding in the pyramid complex is the same thing that Harry Sheldon and the people in this television show Foundation were trying to leave behind so that future civilizations could come out of the ashes more quickly. And what you're saying about this 24,000-year cycle is basically what uh, the ancient sage uh, Yukteswar said about the Yugas. Yep. Essentially, that's right. Which is something that the that the Vedic texts we've been talking about as well, and they arguably could be ten thousand years old as well, because even even uh, the 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 scholars of the Vedic text they say it's four or five thousand, but many of them say they're much much older than that. It's all based on twenty four, everything, mm -hmm. even our time system, and even music itself is based on a quarter tone. Chromatic scale, not semitone, but quarter tone chromatic scale. So I just Why? I've just been working on this, and I just posted something on Instagram about it last night. Everything is based on twenty fourness, literally mm -hmm. twenty fourness, and it goes all the way up to twenty four. And this is also the prime number pattern. I discovered a relationship of prime numbers that all prime numbers after the number three, so five, seven, eleven, thirteen, seventeen, nineteen, twenty three, and so on. When you square them, there will always be a multiple of 24 plus 1, without exception, infinitely. And I published a paper on this. 24-ness is the way the universe operates. Why? Because this same structure of the cube octahedron mm -hmm. has 24 edges. Flatten this down, it becomes a mod 24 spiral. <laughs> so the, the so point is that I think that the pyramids were built by... Both. It's part of the simulation, and it's the part of the simulation that's intended to wake us up. It's it's instead of like having this smack wake up, right? 
It's like when you buy those uh, alarms in the morning that actually open the curtains of your house slowly. Sure. So you've got the sunlight coming on you. So you're you're not getting it in this abrupt way. You're waking up slowly to it right. as you uncover it. Each piece, it's so brilliantly designed. It's beyond this world. And, and that I'm 1,000% sure of now. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So when we look at it from that perspective, it really starts to change your paradigm and your thought process because it's not only the Great Pyramids that do this. It's also the Teotihuacan, the Chichen Itza, Mohenjo-Daro. I could go through all the different sacred sites around the world. They're all telling us the same thing. And they're telling us the story of mankind's cycling through the Duat, the world of duality, which is the story of Osiris, killed by his brother, cut into 14 parts that we're here to learn through experiencing the opposites, that we're here to learn non-judgment. We're not here to learn more judgment. We're here to learn how to transcend judgment. We've got a construct around us that's all about judgment. We didn't want it to be easy. So now you start to think, wait, if you were a mountain climber, would you have come to a world where you'd want to have, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a mountain climber. I want to climb the hill behind my house? No. You're going to want to climb El Capitan, or you're going to want to climb, you know, Everest, or, or you know, Kilimanjaro, something significant. And then if you don't make it, then you're going to be like, oh, I got to go back. I got to get to the next level in this game. This is driving me nuts. I want to go back again. It changes the context of everything, because the things that you chose to learn are going to be different from what everyone else chooses to learn. It changes the context right of life experience in general, because you realize that all the things that you had judged in other people, why would someone want to be born into this life in suffering? Well, why did you choose the suffering that you chose? The end of all suffering is when you realize that it's not suffering at all. It's just your choice. And what you thought was destiny was just the free will of your higher self that you chose all of it. So Robert, let me ask you this. Since we're talking about the plateau, what about that other little uh, thing on the plateau? Uh, the little little lion thing that sits on the side? Oh, the Sphinx. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Sphinx. How old is the Sphinx? Who built the Sphinx? Is it older than the pyramids? So I believe that the Sphinx, you know, it's hard to say. We don't know. I was just with Robert Schock uh, a few weeks ago at this conference in San Diego and we were on a panel together and, you know, he's the one who dated the Sphinx to being more than 5,000 years old, which is what the dynastic story would push us to like a 4,500 year old Sphinx story that, that would have been built by Caffre. Caffre was the builder of the second pyramid, they believe. But actually what we've now found and what he presented there is his best uh, belief on it based on the erosion of the Sphinx is that it's approximately 13,000 years old. Back to the same. So it was built around the same time in your theory, uh, your, in your, in your, uh, so what well that would mean is that that would have been the end of the last golden cycle, right? So if the total calendar on one side of it is 13,000 years or 12,000, you know, uh, it's basically 25,920 divided by two, 12,960. Mm -hmm. 
So 13,000 years. Then the other side is 10,800, right? Then for us to go back into that next cycle again would be about 10,800 years from now. So it's literally on the backside of the cycle. If the cycle is total ellipse here like this, Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. exactly where we are right now, looking back at us. Right? Age of Aquarius. So the timeline that the Sphinx would have been placed there would have been Leo, which would have been its opposite, would have been Aquarius, which was water. So, of course, it's destroyed by water. Mm-hmm. Right? And mm-hmm. so it's exactly the opposite on this cycle. And you start looking at these cycles and you can point to major things in our history. Right, the Taurian age, right? You can go through each of these uh, periods throughout our history. Taurus is a, a period of great learning and expansion. And that would have been, you know, call it 4,000 uh, years before Christ, something in that time frame, right? The Sumerian period, et cetera. Then you could kind of keep going on that and you realize, okay, during the time of Isaiah, there would have been the period of Aries, lots of wars and conquering during that time. You know, obviously, we're talking about Hellenistic wars even during that period of time. Mm-hmm. And and he talks about the coming of Jesus as being the Lamb of God. And the story of Moses, also during this period of Aries, was let's put lamb's blood on the door. Everything was about the lamb, the lamb, and protection of the lamb. But then when Jesus comes, everything switches to fish. I shall make you fishermen of men. And the opposite symbols in that astrology will also be the shadow consequence for society, too. So what was the opposite mm-hmm. symbol of the Piscean age? The opposite symbol of Pisces was what? Do you know? It's Virgo. I don't. The virgin. So why do you think we've been worshiping for the last 2,000 years this little notion of virginity? The Virgin Mary, right? All these symbologies we have of immaculate birth, etc., because this is all tied to this notion of, of this purity and this puritanical way of thinking about the world. Now we're going into Aquarius. So what's our opposite now? It's Leo again. So why do you think gold is now becoming a major part of how we look at society, right? Gold was very unpopular as a color, as a as a jewelry and everything. Only like 30, 40 years ago, it was you know not popular when I was a kid. Now it's very popular. People all want gold right? because it's all part of this collective consciousness, the cyclicality of it all. And the same time, you know, Aries, the opposite of Aries was Libra. So during this period of time of great conquering, the Roman conquest and everything else during this period, the Etruscans, you also had incredible learning that came with Libra. Mm-hmm. That's a characteristic of learning. Justice, governance, right? The balance of the scales. We're basically on a big clock. And that clock is a zodiac clock. And that zodiacal clock is the experiences that we're living through changing the backdrops. It's like it's like changing the backdrop on a stage. For a filmmaker, you know exactly what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this, though. So now the timeline, the human timeline, seems to be continuously being pushed back. Because apparently 13,000 years ago, we were hunter-gatherers. So this makes no sense in the, in the normal narrative that we've been taught for you know hundreds of years at this point. So go back to the Tepe, just you know, kind of is a, is a big um, monolithic kind of a site that's come yep, out. That's yep, been mm-hmm. aged, d- dated to around thirteen thousand yep, mm-hmm. years as well. 
But there's other things that are starting to pop out. And, and please correct me, maybe you'll know better than I do, that are being pushing the timeline back 20,000, 30,000. So maybe there are other cycles back another 26,000 years and and so on. Are there anything else that keeps pushing the human story back? Oh, I think we're going to keep finding that this has been going on for a long, 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 long time. Mm -hmm. That we've been going through these cycles over and over and over again. It's on repeat. But we keep, are we gradually ascending? It seems to be. I think we come least. here so that we can experience. It's it's like, um, like I said, it's a spiritual life simulation. There have been many different peoples that have come through here through time that have gone through this action of expanding beyond the duality world, expanding beyond the duat. When Osiris was killed, he was basically sent to the duat, the world of mm -hmm. duality which was often described as the underworld or hell. But actually, this place can be either a heaven or a hell. It just depends on how we decide to perceive it. And it's like a lot of people ask me all the time, like, well, Robert, are you saying that we're in like a giant escape room? We need to escape out of here? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, except that part of the game is such that the only way you'll ever be able to leave it is to transcend it. And the only way you'll ever be able to transcend it is by learning to fall in love with it just as it is. So from the mystics that I've spoken to uh, and, and spiritual masters, all of them, even, even near-death experiencers uh, and channels I've spoken to, all say the same thing, that what is happening now currently, as we're speaking, there is an awakening happening. Yep. There is a, an understanding. We are going towards out of the darkness going into the light mm -hmm. a little bit. And that's why all this stuff is going crazy around the world because you got to bring it up in order for it to heal. But that I've asked this many times, I go, is this the first time that this has happened? And across the board, from every different kind of person around the world, they all say, this has never happened in human history. We've gone through cycles many times, as the Yugas has said, but our spiritual consciousness has not gotten to this level ever. And that's why people are so, souls are so excited to come down during this time period. Would you agree with that? You know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. So I'm not going to try to, you know, and of course, no one has to believe what I'm saying. It's like, you sure. find the stuff out on your own. But what I would say is yeah. this. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I believe that we've been going through many cycles. I don't think this is exactly like all the other cycles, just as I, I believe that your fingerprint, your retina, your iris is uniquely yours. You know, your eyes of perspective, because then you start asking the question, why is the universe doing this? Why create this elaborate game? Mm -hmm. And what I believe is that the way that the universe itself expands, source consciousness expands by the integration of more and more unique subjective perspectives. That that feeds an Akashic record of data. Think of it like a blockchain. That there's a blockchain mm -hmm. that expands the universe, and that goes back to the expansion at the speed of light. Because really... The speed of light, I don't believe, is truly the speed of light per se. What I believe is probably more appropriate is it's actually the speed of our perception. 
So for us to integrate new knowledge, it is occurring at that speed of light. The integration of new knowledge, and that's true at the universal scale as well. That's why the universe seems to be expanding at approximately the speed of light. It's expanding at the speed of light. But then we start asking the question, well, what is, does light really travel? And I would say to you, no, it does not. And you're probably like going, Robert, what the heck are you talking about? Of course, we know that light travels. No. Let me ask you a question. You've been to football games, right? Yes. And you go yes. to a, a, a stadium. And have you been there when there's been a wave? Yes. Okay. So what do you do when there's a wave? The wave comes around, which is an energy, energy perturbation that goes around the stadium. And then you stand up and then sit down, right? So you have two modes. You have on excitation, which is up, and off excitation, which is off. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you actually travel around the stadium? <laughs> no. no. Neither do photons. Neither do water molecules. When there's an, a, a huge earthquake in Japan off Fukushima, the water that ends up on the shores of California is not the water that came from Japan. There's only two modes for the water molecules in the ocean. It's on excitation, off excitation. So when we believe this is true for all wave phenomenon, I don't care. There's no evidence that shows that photons actually travel. What's happening is there's an on excitation and an off excitation inside an etheric field, which is like an LED yeah. screen in a holograph. So there's an on position and an off position. The energy flows through it. So what we believe to be material is not material at all. It's actually all mental. So as I move my hand around like this, each time I'm going through another cubic field of mm -hmm. the ether, right? It's recreating itself as I'm moving it around. In theory, I should be able to put my hand right through it. Right. But there's something more to this particular construct that makes us believe that you can't put your hand right through it. And right. this actually is very consistent with what all the yogis have been saying. You read, you read my mind. <laughs> yeah. Right. And faith can move yeah. mountains. Right. And you can be at two places at the same time. You can levitate. These are yogic powers because they are at a different consciousness level. Exactly. So the whole point of this place is a training ground for us to have the realization that we had those powers all along. And if you're going to create a simulation game, and let's say you're omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, the only game that would ever make any sense would be a limitation of your powers. Right. where you get to gain them back over time and have realizations through the whole process of it. So this is, I believe, what the path of spirituality, geometry, mathematics, when you start getting deep into this, you start realizing that everything is connected and that you chose it all. Everything. You chose it all so that you can fall in love with this experience. And realize once you fall in love with it, then you no longer need to suffer. Because even the sad things and the difficulties that happen to you, you even fall in love with that. And when you truly embrace that and realize that it's all happening not to me, but for and through me, mm -hmm. then you no longer have to suffer 
because it's the resistance that we keep applying that creates the persistence of our experience. Robert, these are some deep, uh, deep ideas and deep thoughts. Hopefully, the audience is these seeds are are taking are germinating in people's minds because it's very, very powerful stuff. If you can just get past the ego, get past the 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 perception. Yeah, well, we all get you, stuck. The, the program. We made a great the programming. programming. We fooled ourselves really well. It's fabulous. Oh, God, what know? a great freaking program! Experts. But look, what's happened during during COVID, right? Everyone started waking mm -hmm. up. It's a mass awakening right now because it's time for it to happen. And everything is happening so rapidly now because there's so many bizarre caricatures that just don't make sense anymore. Right, exactly. And the concept of like working for 40 hours or 40 years in, in a factory somewhere and then retire at 65 with a, with a watch, living a miserable life for 40 years, that was what our parents and grandparents did. But our gener our generation and definitely my kids' generation, they look at that like, are you insane? Oh, I know. That makes no favorite, sense. One of my favorite movies is Office Space oh, such from a 1999, classic. right? Where they're like in this cubicle and they're going to steal this money from the bank and they're going to do one fraction of a penny yeah. on everyone. And then they, they screw it up and they're like, uh-oh, we're going to get caught. And, and so they're like... What are we going to do, man? What are we going to do? We're all screwed. We're in such trouble. And they've got one guy who's like from the Middle East, the short little guy that's from the Middle East. And he says, he says, do you want the one, the one guy from Silicon Valley, the main character says, do you want to spend the rest of your life in a cubicle in this nine to five job? Really? In this horrible existence? And the guy's like, I can only dream of such job security. <laughs> <laughs> such a great movie. That's, man. A, great that's movie. such a great movie. Yeah. It, it's like, let's be real here, guys. There's more to life than this. And we're we're being woken up to this game. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, going back to Egypt for a second, I've heard of this concept called the mystery schools yeah. in Egypt and in India and in Tibet. Mm -hmm. I've Because I've been studying where Jesus was between mm -hmm. age 12 and age 13. Yeah, he went to India yeah, and Tibet. He studied Jainism. He studied Buddhism. He studied... Uh, Right, the whole yada 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 mm -hmm. part of the Bible. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they yeah, call it the exactly. yada 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 part. Um, I always like, where has that been? So the mystery schools. I heard that he went to the mystery schools in Egypt. I've heard you speak of the mystery schools. Can you explain to people what the mystery schools were in Egypt? Yeah. So actually, even before Jesus, you know, between he was from the time he was twelve years old until he was thirty, we have no record of him really in the Bible. Cool. Right. Right. Um, but right after he was born. Um, the Holy Family, as they're often re referenced, right? So Mary, Joseph, and Jesus left and went to uh, Egypt because they had to escape Herod's execution order on all firstborn male children, right? Males, okay. right. And so the place that he went was in a place, uh, there's actually records of where they went and everything, and they, they got on a boat to go down to southern Egypt, or what's called the Upper Nile, uh, from a place called Mahdi. And Mahdi means calendar. And um, and there's an interesting tie into the Da Vinci story on that because Da Vinci, uh, we found that that a lot of his paintings were actually encrypting this information. Yeah, I was going to ask you mm -hmm. about that next. So Mahdi is a reference also to a place that he said he was in in his letter that he wrote to the Sultan of Cairo when he was working for the Sultan of Cairo. And mm -hmm. what we found was that first of all, very recently, Da Vinci's mother has been found out to have been Circassian, who is, uh, you know, it's kind of like Circassians would be like Armenians, close to Armenia. Uh, she was supposed to have been a slave, 
that gained her freedom, right? And she she was the 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 mother of Leonardo, and his father was a, a famous notary, right? Pietro was his name, and they they you know lived in Vinci, but Pietro was a pretty famous notary kind of lawyer type person in in Firenze, which is Florence. Now, what's interesting about this is that the kingdom that was in control of Egypt and Syria during Da Vinci's time was actually Circassian. The Mamluk sultans were Circassians. Okay. So mm -hmm. there was a connection between Leonardo's mother and where she was from, and also the Mamluk sultan, Kate Bay. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And this sultan is who hired da Vinci, as well as more than 100 other scholars from Europe at the time, because he was rebuilding Cairo. And he wanted Cairo to be this thriving metro metro metropolitan area that had all these Tuscany-style Tuscany buildings. And he brought in the top scholars and architects and geometricians and mathematicians from all over Europe, and one of them was Leonardo. Now, Leonardo encrypted all of this in his letter to this Sultan Cape Bay. Actually, it was sent to the Devetdar or the Lieutenant Devetdar of the Sultan himself. And he tells the whole story of how he worked for the Sultan and where he was going, but he encrypted the whole thing talking about Mount Taurus, which is actually a reference to the Great Pyramid, which is one of the original names of the Great Pyramid. And Ras Tau, which is Taurus backwards, is the original name of the Giza mm -hmm. Plateau. He said that he lived in this city that was a bustling, thriving city on, a on the banks of a river that he claimed was the Euphrates, but actually it's the Nile River, the two most famous rivers in the world at that time, looking exactly from the east towards the Great Pyramid or the Bull Mountain. Now, this reference was supposed to be in a town called Kalindra. Now, there's never been a town on the Euphrates in Armenia or in Turkey called Kalindra. Kalindra is a reference to Kali, dragon. The dragon, mm -hmm. Dra, is from Dracos, the constellation of the dragon. Kali is this destruction, right? And often a reference that we have that you would recognize because I see Yogananda over your shoulder and all the, the yogis that you basically studied, you know that we talk about Kali Yuga. We talk about, right? Exactly. So it's a reference to time, sure. Kalindra. So Kalindra is in this town, happens to be called Calendar, which there's a town in old Cairo called Calendar. And mm -hmm. the main chapel, that's the Coptic chapel, which is supposed to be the place where Jesus and his family lived in Mahdi, in Calendar, uh, when he was there both as a child and when he went back right before he had his triumphal return into Jerusalem, right before he was crucified. Right when he was riding the donkey, and he came back, and there were palm mm -hmm. fronds and everything that, to greet him into the city. Well, this place, Mahdi, in the center of it is a huge Coptic chapel, which was one of the first Christian chapels, and it is called the the Cathedral to Saint George of the Dragons. So Saint mm -hmm. George of the Dragon, again Kalindra. So Da Vinci encrypted mm -hmm. it all. So Mahdi is the place, and Jesus also went to the pyramid. He spent the night in the pyramid as well, and he went there with the apostles right before he returned to Jerusalem. Now, this whole story is well-documented and well-recorded. 
And Da Vinci is trying to tell the story of this. The Last Supper painting is actually a map of the king's chamber. It's a map of the king's chamber. When you look into the detail of it, and we've done it, so check out Codex and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. He's actually mapped the whole thing out. The position of Jesus, Alpha and Omega with Mary Magdalene, is exactly where the Alpha Omega was discovered on the rim of the sarcophagus in the king's chamber, in the same spot. Yeah. Above him and above the window behind him in the Last Supper is something that looks like a pediment, and that pediment's the shape of an eye of Ra. There's an eye of Ra on the exact same spot on the king's chamber wall, and there's a bull and cow on the right wall or the north wall of the king's chamber as well, exactly where there's one encrypted in the tapestry in the Last Supper as well. So this is telling us something a lot more. It's a lot deeper, right? Jesus went to Tibet. I went to meet Dalai Lama in 2019, and he told me that he had all the records of Jesus' visit to Tibet, and they called him Asa. Asa was the name that they used for describing a Palestinian man who came about 2,000 years ago to Tibet and learned to be a Buddhist monk, among other things. And he was a High Lama. So this is exactly the story Dalai Lama tells of the story of Jesus. And there's a there's a great book about the lost years of Jesus living in, in India um, that you mm-hmm. can find access to as well. And that would have been between the time he was 12 years old until the time he was 30 years old. But what was Jesus teaching? He was teaching something very anathematically different to what the Old Testament prescribed to us. The Old Testament was a right. was a book, I'm a Jealous God. It was a book of mm-hmm. eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Mm-hmm. Hate your enemy, right? Kill your enemy. In fact, kill your enemy, consecrate what he has to me, and you'll be rewarded for that. Right? It's kind of like the shepherd who has a flock, and then says, oh, my flock is damaged now because there's too much sunlight on my side of the hill. The guy over there, he's got greener pastures, and he worships a different god. I need to kill him and consecrate his land to my god. That was the concept of the Old Testament. And so what happened was Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 hold on a minute. No, no, no. There are only two great commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength and love thy neighbor as thyself. How many times should you forgive someone who's wronged you? Seven times 70, right? So you don't, Mm -hmm. there's no limit to how many times. I mean, that was basically a way of saying seven times 70, that's 490 times. That's a lot of times. That's a lot of times you're (laughs) going to forgive somebody. And then secondly, he said, judge not lest ye judge yourself with the same judgment you cast on others. That's the experience Mm -hmm. we're living. So he was taking us to a higher transcendent way of looking at the world. He didn't say only, he wasn't trying to say he's God. He was trying to say all of us are. The entire universe is God. God is not some animate object within. He's the creator of it all and is all of it. There's nothing in the universe that's not God, including the darkness, including the things that we perceive as evil and bad. We have this concept that God is only good. That's like saying the universe is only good. No, there's balance in the universe. The light needs the darkness as much as the darkness needs the light. When I go to buy a diamond, first thing I do is I ask to put that beautiful diamond in front of a black velvet cloth that absorbs all the light because it makes the diamond shine more brightly. The diamond 
and light needs the darkness. It's the contrast that makes it beautiful. So all of these, so all of these schools and thoughts and in India and Tibet and, and in Egypt was what brought basically, I've been saying this and it's been said many times before me, that basically they Jesus was a great yogi. He was a great yogi. And that's what India calls it. Yeah. No doubt in my mind. And he did that. things that were and he was and he did yogic things. <laughs> In that, you know, when you start looking back at these Vedic texts, talking about yogic powers, he was displaying many of those things because he has transcended his consciousness to a place where uh, where he could do these things. And he was just basically trying to, levit to levitate, or not levitate, but to elevate humanity. And he succeeded in many ways. But his teachings, of course, have been slightly bastardized across. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> because then everyone all of a sudden started putting it in the frameworks of their own comfort. Right. right. Because we don't see the world right. as it is, we see it as we are. And because when we look at the world around us, we think that the things that are ethical happen to be the things from our vantage points. And I don't even like to call it the vantage place. point. I call it our points of advantage. The things that benefit us are the things that we choose mm -hmm. as our only ethical choices for society. What a surprise. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, Robert, now I wanted to talk to you about something that has been coming up recently, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Antarctica. And are there pyramids that they found underneath the ice? Because now the ice is melting. What do you think happened on this continent? Because, you know, I don't know how many thousands of years ago, it was flourishing. It was not under ice yeah. based on mm -hmm. just general geology. So what do you think is there? And are we finding, what do you think we are finding? And what will we find as far as ancient civilizations there? Possibly? I believe that um, in this construct, every 13,000 years, there's a cyclic change. Right. And that cyclic change is accompanied with some calamity. Okay. Right. And... It could be that it's tied to the phenomenon of pole shifting. And that pole shifting has the characteristic of uh, if it's a dramatic pole shift, it's entirely within the realm of feasibility that you would have a separation as the earth is traveling, right, and spinning on its axis, right? It's traveling 1,000 miles per hour. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Okay, 1,000 miles per hour. Imagine if all of a sudden the earth came to a grinding halt in its spin. You're going to have a separation of the plates, right, that they will literally float. And then, of course, that's going to cause a massive shift as well in how water gets displaced. Because the planet is covered, you know, 70% of the planet is water, approximately. Mm -hmm. So now you're traveling at 1,000 miles an hour and you come to a grinding halt. You're going to have a, a major displacement in that giant bathtub, right? <laughs> and what's also going to happen is that you're going to have some shifting of the continents. We tend to think of everything being these slow drifts. I don't think it's necessarily always slow drifts because that's been our paradigm. It could be that it's a t entirely a rearrangement of what we know as continents 
that happens when we have these massive pole shifts, right? And the pole shifts are well-documented. People know, we, we've known scientifically that they exist and they exist at the halfway points approximately of our procession of equinox, that 24,000 year cycle or 13,000 years for us in this long end of the cycle. So I mm -hmm. believe that Antarctica was at one time, just as we've seen on the maps when we were in, you know, junior high and high school of Pangaea and all these like supercontinents that existed and then broke apart. Uh, there's others that believe that there was an inflation theory around it, that all the continents were attached to each other. And then as the earth grew and expanded in its diameter, that all of a sudden they got further, farther and farther apart, just like the universe is expanding with dark matter, dark energy, basically expanding within it as well. Mm -hmm. So what's going on with Antarctica? Do I believe that there are pyramids likely in Antarctica? Yes, I do. I don't know that what we're looking at in the photographs are, but I would not be surprised that under, you know, all of the, you know, many, many meters, right, of, of, uh, of frozen ice, that we will end up finding something there for sure. I, I fully believe that. There's no doubt about that in my mind. So some people believe that maybe what we call Antarctica was actually Atlantis at one time, or maybe Mu, right? One of the other ancient civilizations, which would have had Lemurians on it. You know, Atlantis was just the end of the cycle, but Atlantis was built by Lemurians, and those were the people really of what we would call the Pacific uh, islands, right? So going from, you know, that triangle that's formed from Hawaii to Easter Island to New Zealand, right? There's a large triangle there. And that would have been the remnants of, you know, what also might have been a sunken continent uh, that would have been related to Lemuria and Mu. And that's what uh, people like Rudolf Steiner posit, right? But the end of that cycle would have before their calamities would have ended up with Atlantis. Atlantis was was not what I would say at the peak of civilization. They were sort of falling back from their peak. They were dropping in their consciousness. And they had to figure out ways to maintain their level of consciousness as their world was starting to shift. Imagine people literally becoming dumber and dumber, right? As time went by because they no longer had access to their intuition, no longer had access to anything except for that which was material form. From an age and time period where they had access, free access to these things in society, and therefore were able to make incredible sites like Giza Plateau, like Teotihuacan, like Angkor Wat, Mahanjadaro, all these places around the world that we just can't add up as to how they got there so perfectly. And I think now the human story is about to be expanded pretty dramatically. So that's what I believe, and I can't say much more about Antarctica. Um, you know, I I can't really go further into it because we we need more evidence before we can really understand more about it at this stage. But is it within the realm of conceivability? Without a doubt, it is. And but as you were saying that you know towards the end of Atlantis that the that the people were getting dumber. Many people listening right now would argue that we are getting dumber now, but I would see the opposite of that because I see the 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 ascension of people i see the curiosity in people but yes there are a lot that are still stuck in the material world in that duality in that contrast world what would you say to people who think that we are actually not going up but we're actually going down we're in a decline i think we're doing both the reason i say that is because every action must have an equal opposite reaction 
Yeah. So for some people who are expanding into the fifth dimension, one over five is two. So some people are going to go into the flat dimension. Mm -hmm. Like literally, there is a, an expansion of consciousness happening concomitant to a contraction of it. You cannot have it any other way. Look at any movie. All right. Uh, Lord of the Rings. As soon sure. as there's this battle for, you know, the, the ring of Sauron, the ring of power, mm. the orcs show up. But just as the orcs show up, at the exact same time, Gandalf the Grey becomes Gandalf the White. And magic returns to the land in a more powerful way than it ever has before. You could say that Balance. it's like expression of light. You know, if you've been in a psychedelic journey, you know that colors look different. You see colors that you didn't actually see before. Because they've got kind of this golden iridescent quality to it, which is like neon gold and really cool and pretty and all that. But they're not colors that were in your standard coloring box when you were in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. But in order for us to have the increased magic manifestation, this transcendence in the land, darkness has to get darker. For the light to express, just as the diamond expresses more brightly in front of a black velvet cloth, there has to be this increase in non-duality and a you know a increase at the same time in polarity so the backdrop of the world right now some people are expanding without a doubt some people are really expanding in an unprecedented way but we have to be thankful to the people that are in the third dimension anchoring it because they're making it possible for us to go into this higher level of experience because if we didn't have them we wouldn't will we be able to eventually bring the rest of humanity with us in that sense, then this awakening. You know, what I believe is that, well, this goes into the question of, is everybody here to ascend? No, not. Yeah. And this is where you've got a lot of people throughout history talking about, and the Bible references it as well, this 144,000, right? And numbers like that. And you kind of go, how could it only be 144,000? Um, these are deep, deep questions that, frankly, I don't know the answers to. But I don't believe that every single person in this lifetime will choose to ascend. Now, Robert, I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all my guests, because I can keep talking to you for a few okay. hours, and you definitely got to come back on the show because there's so much more we could talk sure. about. But I'm going to ask you a few questions. That's all. Yes. What is your definition of living a fulfilled life? Living a life, understanding who you are and realizing what you came here to learn. And once you start learning what you came here to learn and remember who you are, then everything shifts for you because you start realizing the universe is happening for you, not to you. It's happening for and through you. And that every experience you've had is something you chose because you wanted to learn a concept or a precept. So the most challenging things turn into the most beautiful realizations. Living a fulfilling life is being at ease and at one with that. Being able to realize that no matter what happens to you, you can surrender and you're taken care of. And that means you, you know, it changes everything. The context of everything shifts when you take on this new meaning. It's not about, I have to fight someone. 
I have to have a villain to battle. I have to be the hero because, you know, every single villain that ever existed always believed they were the hero. Yep. 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 No question. It's letting yourself transcend that belief system and construct and realize that there's more to the objective truth that really is just you've been only seeing one facet of it. And seeking instead to see more and more facets of it and to learn more. And through this context, you also figure out that the more I learn, the less I actually know. How do you define God? I think I said it earlier. I think God is the entire universe. There's nothing in this universe that's not God. All of it is divine. There's no such thing as coincidences. I don't believe in coincidences. The only times I could believe in coincidences is when I couldn't zoom out my perspective enough to see the pattern. I believe the entire universe is patterned. I don't believe in entropy. I make a random number generator, and I don't believe in true randomness. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. Because I realized that every time I looked for a pattern, I found a pattern, without exception. Hmm. And if I set my mind to it, I could basically uncover all patterns. What we consider entropy really should just be considered our ignorance. It's the zone of, I don't know what I don't know. It doesn't mean there's no pattern. It just means I haven't identified that pattern yet. So the entire universe is a balance of what we would consider what we understand and what can construct in our minds and understand why it's there and the purpose of it. And then it's also bounded by all kinds of other stuff that we just simply don't know. And the things we don't know, since we don't like to say we don't know it, we call it entropic or random. No, it's just the boundary of where our knowledge ends and our ignorance begins. And when we start to realize <laughs> that entropy is really just the end of our knowledge and the beginning of our ignorance, then it changes our context on everything too, because before mankind realized what pi was, he didn't know there was a relationship between a diameter and a circle. But as soon as we realized the relationship between a diameter and a circle, then that led to a lot of other discoveries across the board, right? Where we could now push that boundary condition of where knowledge ends and ignorance begins further and further out. And that's happening at the speed of light. If you had, uh, if you can go back in time and uh, talk to your younger self, what advice would you give him? Enjoy the ride. <laughs> it's one hell of a ride, isn't it? You know, Island Watts um, said it best. He said, "Mankind only suffers because he takes too seriously what the gods made for fun." That's such a great thought. That's a great quote. Great, great quote. And finally, what is the ultimate purpose of life? To remember who you are, why you came here, and learn how to love and how to be loved. Beautiful answer. And my friend, where can people find out more about you and the amazing work that you're doing in the world? Um, you could find me at my website, robertedwardgrant.com. Uh, also, I have a YouTube channel, Robert Edward Grant. Uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, Robert Edward Grant with the blue tick. And uh, I'm on pretty much every social platform. I have a television show called on Gaia called Code X, which has done extremely well, shockingly so. Mm -hmm. um, and I have several books. <laughs> uh, my latest book is a book called Polymath, 
right here. And I have another book called Philomath, which goes into number theory uh, and geometry, but you don't need to be a number theory expert to understand it. And it's been the number one selling book on uh, Amazon in, in mathematics and number theory for the last two years now. That's amazing, uh, Robert. And do you have any parting messages for the audience? Just love and be loved and relax. Don't take the journey too seriously. Have fun with it. You know, I think that's the biggest thing. I don't think the world's a difficult place because people hate each other. I think it can be a difficult place because we hate ourselves. But it is through the process of learning to accept and love ourselves that we will learn to accept and love the world around us. And then your entire experience and world around you will totally transform. And this is what it means to be the change you want to see in the world. Robert, on that note, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been such a pleasure and honor talking to you. We will have to do a part two, Happy a to. part three, and a part Happy four eventually. To. Happy to. So I, pre I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you again. Thank you, Alex. Have a good one. I want to thank Robert so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge with him. I cannot wait for part two, hopefully coming later this year. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 256. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.